Welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of July 3rd, 2022. As always, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And we're going to be uh, continuing in our explorations of Ukrainian history, and particularly returning to the theme of uh, comparing those two extremely divergent exponents of armed Ukrainian resistance to Russian rule, Nestor Makhno during the First World War and Stepan Bandera during the Second and immediately before. Uh, opposites in terms of their political ideologies, an anarchist and a right-wing nationalist, and also um, uh, operating at opposite ends of Ukraine, Nestor Makhno in the Far East, in precisely the area where uh, the war is focused at the moment, and Stepan Bandera in the, in the Far West, in the regions which, when he began his uh, career, was actually not even under Russian or Soviet rule. It was under Polish rule, as we shall see. And my purpose tonight uh, in continuing this discussion is to dispel a lot of misconceptions, some of which I am finding over the course of my research I have shared about these two men, about the both of them. And I'm going to begin by reading a uh, very brief and telling quote from George Orwell from his indispensable essay, Notes on Nationalism, 1945. Quote, the nationalist not only does not disapprove of atrocities committed by his own side, but he has a remarkable capacity for not even hearing about them. <laughs> End quote. And uh, as we've noted before, Orwell is, um, in this essay, is not merely talking about nationalism. He's kind of using that as a uh, shorthand for a larger category of any, you know, intense identification with a group, whether it's a nation or a political ideology. And I have to confess that, uh, you know, I am guilty of exactly what he's talking about here, or I have been up until up until just now, because um, in all of my uh, reading over the years about Nestor Makhno, uh, principally in the, the books The Russian Anarchist by Paul Avrich, and The Unknown Revolution by Volin, who had actually been a, uh, a comrade of Makhno. And the more recent book, Nestor Makhno and Rural Anarchism in Ukraine, 1917-1921, by Colin Dark, Pluto Press. I had not been aware at all, because none of those books mention it, of the seemingly ethnically targeted attacks by Makhno's forces against the Mennonite community in eastern Ukraine. Actually, a correction. Colin Dark's book does touch on it. That's where I first heard about it. Those two other more classic books that I mentioned, Paul Average and Voline, don't mention it at all. Colin Dark actually does touch on it, and having just read that book recently, that's how I became aware of uh, of this episode and wanted to learn more and um, started digging to see what else was available on it and uh, found out about the book that I just read, which was a real eye-opener. Makhno and Memory, 
anarchist and Mennonite narratives in Ukraine's civil war, 1917 to 1921, by Sean Patterson, a writer of uh, Mennonite background himself, at least partially, published by the University of Manitoba, that western province of Canada, which has got a significant Mennonite community, in 2020. Now, a little bit of historical background here, which um, is also kind of important historical background for the current war, which I've kind of pieced together from several different books. Been doing a lot of reading about this recently. We're talking about the uh, the area of Ukraine, basically the uh, southeast of the country, including the Donbass region, which Russia is now attempting to annex, clearly. This area was known in Tsarist times as Novorossiya, or New Russia. They actually established a governorate of that name there. There had never exactly been a Ukrainian governorate under Tsarist rule. There was a patchwork of different governorates, including Kiev and Kharkiv and so on. But uh, <clears throat> this area was called Novorossiya, and Prior to its um, conquest in the 18th century by Catherine the Great in the, uh, as part of the Russo-Turkish Wars, it had largely been under the control of the Crimean Khanate, a surviving remnant state of the uh, Turkic-Mongol Golden Horde, which in medieval times had ruled over all Russia but was by then under the um, suzerainty and protection of the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And this was bounded on the north, also in the same territory, by uh, the domain of the Zaporizhian Cossacks, who themselves were a uh, kind of a reduced surviving remnant state of the Cossack Hetmanate which for about a century had uh, ruled over most of Ukraine before its domains were absorbed into the Russian Empire. And the Zaporizhian Cossacks apparently had de facto independence, at least, and were defending the frontier against the Crimean Tartars of the Khanate. But once the Khanate had been crushed, the uh, Zaporizhian Cossacks had sort of uh, outlived their usefulness to the empire, and they too were um, subdued and expropriated of their lands. And this area was, up until that point, very sparsely populated. And there was a, uh, a real imperative on the part of the Russian empire to populate it, to get it settled and integrated into the empire. So it was settled both from the east and the west. From the east, by Russians, ethnic Russians, and from the West by ethnic Ukrainians, both moving into the same territory, which is what created, you know, the, the kind of patchwork of um, ethnic identity that we still see in the region today and has been, you know, deftly exploited by nationalists on both sides, but most particularly by Vladimir Putin, of course. And these peasant colonists were free peasants, so to speak, not the serfs who were legally bound to the land in conditions of near slavery. But nonetheless, after they, uh, you know, moved into the territory, large agricultural 
interest followed them and were given large swaths of land by the Russian state, and a kind of a feudalistic order was established in this area as well, with the uh, the landlord class known as the Pomishchiki coming to control more and more land, and the peasants being impoverished and sometimes reduced to hired laborers on the lands of the Pomishchiki. And additionally, the Russian Empire welcomed in Mennonites, Mennonite settlers who started forming agricultural colonies in this area, coming from what's now Germany, fleeing military conscription in what was then Prussia, in line with their pacifist beliefs. And they seem to have been very much favored by the Russian administration and seen as um, very uh, industrious and looked to as a force for economic development. And they amassed a large amount of land as opposed to the particularly Ukrainian peasant colonists who were seen as, you know, backward and discriminated against. And in these several Mennonite agricultural colonies which were established, generally known as Nemetsky Kolonisti, or German colonies, you know, they kept alive their uh, German language and cultural traditions as well as their dissident Anabaptist pacifist faith. And then we jump forward to the uh, great political crisis, which was sparked by the Russian Revolution of 1917. As we've noted before in the last podcast that we did on this topic, this sparked a uh, very complicated multi-sided war in Ukraine. The nascent parliament or Rada in Kiev declared independence which was not recognized by the Bolsheviks, who sent in the Red Army. And this precipitated a coup in which Skoropadsky, the self-declared hetman of Ukraine, himself actually a descendant of one of the Cossack hetmans, who invited in troops from the Central Powers, from Germany and Austria, to back up the independent Ukrainian regime. And this sparks a second coup by Simon Petlora, who was more of a Ukrainian nationalist and wasn't uh, down with the idea of inviting, of inviting in foreign troops, even to fight the Russians. And then the anarchists around Makhno in the southeast took the opportunity to uh, stage their own uprising and establish their own autonomous zone. And all sides in this conflict, were guilty of anti-Semitic pogroms or mass attacks on Jewish communities. And there's been a lot of scholarship about this. Now, you would expect this kind of thing from, you know, the really hardcore Ukrainian nationalists and from the whites, that is to say the, the white Russians, who, uh, who also entered this conflict, making it yet more complicated invading from the east, from the territory of the Don Cossacks, who had given them refuge from the Red Army. But the Red Army itself was also guilty of this kind of thing. An interesting book in this regard was uh, The Recent Anti-Semitism and the Russian Revolution by Brendan McGeever, Cambridge University Press. 
And in his portrayal, most of the uh, anti-Semitic attacks, which were uh, carried out by the, the Red Forces, were mostly at the hands of uh, irregular forces who had taken up uh, arms in, in support of the Bolsheviks, but had not yet really been under the uh, integrated into the command structure of the Red Army, which was just then congealing under Trotsky. But nonetheless, the Reds also did carry out such attacks. And the Whites, and particularly Petlora's forces, definitely. And there's been a lot of controversy over whether the Machnovists did this kind of thing. And the general consensus seems to have been that, yeah, they did, but not nearly as much as the other ones, and also not really at the command of Nestor Machno himself. And according to some scholars, kind of in spite of his orders and his efforts to, you know, rein in this kind of thing. But there has been comparatively little attention to the mass attacks on the Mennonite communities, which were happening during the same period. All right, now the context for this is that uh, there was a, a general peasant uprising, especially in the east of Ukraine, which was sparked by the intervention of the Central Powers. A peasant uprising, particularly against the landlords who were collaborating with the Austrians and Germans, or perceived to be. And in this context, many of the Mennonite communities abandoned their pacifism and formed a militia called the Selbstschutz, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, which I'm probably not, or um, self-defense force, Selbstschutz, which apparently collaborated with the Austrian and German forces. And this resulted in Machnovist reprisals against the Mennonite communities, not only against the, uh, the militia forces, which were, you know, in arms, but also against the civilians and non-combatants with the same kinds of, you know, killings and rapes and general atrocities, which uh, the various forces were also committing against Jews during the same period. And of course, you know, the stigma against the Jews was that they were middlemen and financiers and parasites and all that sort of thing. And the stigma against the, uh, the Mennonites is that, you know, they were big landlords, exploiters of the peasants, and collaborators with the uh, central power forces. And uh, in his book, Machno and Memory, Sean Patterson points out that uh, Machno had actually worked as a farmhand on a, uh, on a Mennonite farm in his youth and was treated very badly there, including being whipped. Sean Patterson also makes clear that Machno's rhetoric in his invective was just against the big landlords and not against ethnic Germans per se. And uh, a particular irony is that uh, Machno's own political mentor and the man he looked up to as the intellectual foundation of his revolution, the great Russian anarchist prince Peter Kropotkin, had himself visited Mennonite communities in Canada in 1897, out in what was then called the West Reserve of Manitoba, and had written a, uh, a favorable report about their communities and kind of looked to them as, a, uh, as an example of you know, communal agrarian living. 
So, very strange uh, historical irony. Uh, the book is uh, divided into uh, into three sections. The first is through Machnovist eyes, in which he, you know, gives the side of the story from uh, the anarchist perspective, Voline and so on. And the uh, the second part is entitled through Mennonite eyes. And this is the part of the story that, you know, I never saw. I, you know, <laughs> of all the years that I've known about Machno, and I, you know, started reading about him. Uh, I think the first time that I actually read about Machno was in Anarchy Comics, way back in the uh, in the early 1980s, where the great underground cartoonist Spain Rodriguez did a little uh, graphic rendering of the life and times of Nestor Machno. <laughs> I think that was why, when I first became aware of, um, of Machno. In all of the reading that I've done about him over the years, I was never aware of this whole episode with the Mennonites. It's like there's this whole other, you know, hidden side of the story for us anarchists, just like I, you know, would imagine <laughs> that, uh, you know, the heroic and utopian revolutionary Machno is a hidden side of the story for the Mennonites. But, uh, you know, hearing the Mennonite side of the story was a real eye-opener for me. And, you know, big, big kudos to Sean Patterson for uh, presenting both sides in this book without bias, just letting the sources speak for themselves. And I'm going to read the, uh, the opening passage from that, um, that second chapter, Through Mennonite Eyes, from the text. At the Winnipeg Mennonite Heritage Center, there hangs a clock known less for its ability to tell time than to tell of a time past. The clock's hands reach out at awkward angles, and its faceplate bears the distinct impression of a boot. The artifact's description reads, quote, Marauding anarchists led by the infamous Nestor Machno destroyed many Kroger clocks. I should interject here. Kroger clocks are uh, sort of the pride of uh, of Mennonite industry. In addition to um, their farming communities, they also established workshops. I think originally in Germany, but then uh, much more so in Canada, where uh, they created these Kroger clocks, wall clocks for the most part. Returning to the text, marauding anarchists led by the infamous Nestor Machno destroyed many Kroger clocks. When they plundered Mennonite villages, the clock became a favorite target because they mistook its burnished metal for gold. They'd seize a clock, gallop out of the village, and later cast it aside after ripping out the weights and chains. One clock is known as the Nestor Machno clock. The brutal bandit was known to take over a village and make himself at home in the most prosperous house. From there, he would lecture village leaders on how life would now proceed under the revolution. On one occasion, a Kroger clock banged while Machno was in mid-speech. The interruption startled him, and in fury, he tore the clock from the wall and trampled on it. When he left, the family collected the pieces. Years later, Arthur Kroger, a Mennonite leader in Canada and presumably of the same family that made the clocks, was called upon to create a duplicate faceplate. The damaged original was donated to the Mennonite Heritage Center in Winnipeg. 
where it still bears the dents of Nestor Machno's boots. End quote. <laughs> well, well, if I ever make it to Winnipeg, I'm going to have to take a look at that. That's certainly a new one on me, and I'll bet that it's a new one on a lot of my anarchist comrades who are listening to this podcast tonight. But uh, the final section of the book, the final chapter, is the one which is really grim, where Sean Patterson goes into great detail about the depredations of the Machnavists against the Mennonite communities, all in um, late 1919, the closing months of 1919. He particularly mentions the attacks on the Mennonite agricultural colonies of Chortitsa, near what is today the city of Dnipro, and Sagradauka, which I glean is uh, more commonly rendered Zagradovka, near the city of Kherson, which is now, at this moment, the scene of very fierce fighting, and uh, most significantly, Eichenfeld in Zaporizhia Oblast. Also, the scene of the uh, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which has been occupied by Russian troops since early in the war, as we've discussed before. And uh, more so than the rest, what took place at Eichenfeld seems to have been uh, not merely excesses, so to speak, of, uh, you know, Machnavist troops who were getting a little bit out of control, but appears to have been an actual planned and premeditated massacre where the uh, fighting age men of the commune were... um, rounded up and summarily put to death. It's believed that uh, 135 were killed. So, a very grim episode and, uh, you know, painful reading for me, I have to say, as someone, you know, who's been steeped in the other side of the story, the anarchist side of the story, taking back the land from the landlords and establishing free peasant communes, dealing a decisive blow to the white Russians at the Battle of Paragonovka, in September 1919, and heroically resisting after that the forces of Petlora, Skoropadsky, the Central Powers, and finally the Red Army, which in the end crushed them after they had, again, outlived their usefulness. Now, uh, Sean Patterson concludes that uh, the jury is still out in terms of, you know, the degree of Machno's own personal complicity with the worst atrocities like that at Eichenfeld. He uh, disputes accounts that Machno was actually on the scene at the massacre. He finds this was unlikely. But Machno did speak of a so-called black terror, that is to say, an anarchist terror against the reactionary forces. But again, most historians, while overlooking this whole affair of the Mennonites entirely, have contended that uh, where anti-Jewish pogroms were concerned, Machno tried to restrain his forces for doing that kind of thing. And in fact, this is the uh, contention of uh, the author of the next book I'm going to discuss, which is um, The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine by Seri Ploki, originally published in uh, 2015, But uh, reissue just last year, 2021, which turned out to be all too timely, 
So obviously, this is a very uh, briskly selling book at the moment, and quite a worthwhile one. And in his brief discussion of Machno, he begins coming right out of a discussion of the anti-Semitic pogroms. Quote, the only warlord who tried, though with mixed success, to restrain his troops from conducting pogroms and fought anti-Semitism in the ranks of his peasant army was Nestor Machno. End quote. So, he, you know, he gives Machno a comparatively clean bill of health here without even mentioning the attacks on the Mennonites who, by the way, would finally be deported by Stalin in 1941 to Siberia. And those few that remained in Ukraine fled the advancing Red Army with the retreating German army in 1944, putting an end to the uh, Mennonite presence in Ukraine. And uh, this brings us to the next thing I want to discuss, which was the role of Stepan Bandera. When... uh, This history sort of repeated itself with the Germans invading for a second time in 1941, this time under the Nazis and with a clearly genocidal intent and setting off a far more violent and horrific period in Ukraine's history. Okay, important background for this is that we should note that um, things had already been very bad in Ukraine even before that. Vladimir Lenin had had a policy of so-called Ukrainianization. While he crushed the nascent Ukrainian state, he kept Ukraine together as a uh, Soviet republic, a unified entity, which it had not been under the czars, and encouraged the use of the Ukrainian language in education and local administration. And finally, uh, in uh, 1920, actually um, appended the Novorossiya region to Ukraine, awarded to Ukraine rather than to Russia. But the uh, policy of Ukrainianization was rapidly reversed when Stalin came to power. The Ukrainian language was eliminated from education and local administration and generally discouraged. And in 1932, there was the mass starvation of the Holodomor, which we discussed on our last podcast on this period, which was certainly a politically created famine. Uh, Historians can argue as to what extent it was um, an intentional genocide on the part of Stalin, but certainly its roots were political and had to do with requisitioning of the grain and the forced collectivization of agriculture. So by this period, the Ukrainians had plenty of reason to rather desperately wish to be free of Russian rule. Technically, Soviet rule, but in reality, Russian rule. But uh, Stepan Bandera actually began his career, not in Soviet Ukraine, but in the far western part of the country, around the uh, Carpathian Mountains, Transcarpathia, as the region is called, and the city of Lviv, which has also been known as Luau, Lemberg, and Lvov, under respectively Polish, Austrian, and German, and finally Russian rule. It was traded back and forth between all of those powers over the years. But in the 1930s, 
before the outbreak of the war, it had been uh, in the interwar period, basically, it had been um, Polish. So Bandera actually began his career opposing the Polish authorities rather than the Russian ones, primarily because he was in the Polish-controlled area, although he also opposed Soviet rule and wanted to unite an independent Ukraine. And this area would, in fact, in 1939, with the outbreak of the war, be um, seized by Stalin and appended to the rest of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Bandera had then been imprisoned by the Polish authorities for his militant activity with the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. And then in uh, 1941, the Nazis invade. And uh, Serhii Ploki in The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, provides a very different picture of what happened next than you would get from reading the uh, standard contemporary uh, leftist commentary on the matter, which appears to be engaging in um, some historical revisionism and portraying Bandera simply as a Nazi collaborator. From the text, the first to experience disappointment with the Nazi regime were the members of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. The OUN had split in 1940, soon after one of its most radical leaders, Stepan Bandera, walked out of a Polish prison in September 1939. Bandera led a revolt against the old cadres and soon found himself at the head of the OUN's largest faction and most radical members. In February 1941, they made a deal with leaders of German military intelligence, the Abwehr, to form two battalions of special operations forces from their supporters. One battalion... Nachtigall, or Nightingale, was among the first German troops to enter Lviv on June 29th, 1941. The next day, it took part in the proclamation of Ukrainian independence by members of the Bandera faction of the OUN. This spelled the end of German cooperation with Bandera's followers. The Germans, who had very different plans for Ukraine, turned on their former allies, arresting scores of members of the Bandera faction, including Bandera himself, whom they told to denounce the Declaration of Independence. He refused and was sent to Sachsenhausen concentration camp, where he would spend most of the war. Two of his brothers were arrested as well and died in Auschwitz. The Bandera faction of the OUN went overnight from the Germans' loyal ally to their enemy, the more moderate OUN faction, headed by Colonel Andrei Melnik, tried to take advantage of the German conflict with its competitors and moved its expeditionary groups into central and eastern Ukraine to set up its network 
influence the selection of Ukrainian cadres for the occupation administration, and conduct educational work and propaganda among the local population. The faction's operations came to a halt in late 1941, with the German administration taking ever stricter control over the Reichskommissariat Ukraine, which was the bogus civil administration that the Nazis had set up. Nazi police had hundreds of OUN members shot in Kiev and other cities and towns of Ukraine. By early 1942, both factions of the OUN were at war with the Germans. End quote. That is to say, the Bandera faction and the Melnik faction. Okay, then we jump forward to 1944, when the Red Army was driving the Germans out of Ukraine. And at this time, a uh, Ukrainian insurgent army emerged to resist the Soviet advance. And uh, there is some controversy as to what its relationship was with uh, Bandera's group, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists. So to return to the uh, text of uh, Gates of Europe, he begins uh, this section with a quote from uh, none other than Nikita Khrushchev, who was leading the Soviet advance into Ukraine. Quote, As we pushed the Germans west, we encountered an old enemy, Ukrainian nationalists, recalled Khrushchev, as he described his efforts to reincorporate western Ukraine into the Soviet state in 1944 and 1945. The Soviet authorities often referred to these nationalist groups generally as Banderites, given the overall control of the nationalist insurgency by the Stepan Bandera faction of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, OUN. Eventually, this term came to denote anyone who fought in the ranks of the Ukrainian Nationalist Army, UPA, controlled by Bandera's followers. The name was misleading in more than one sense. First, not all the UPA fighters shared the nationalist ideology or belonged to the OUN. Second, Bandera himself never returned to Ukraine after his arrest by the Germans in the summer of 1941 and had no operational control over the forces that bore his name. He became a symbolic leader and a proverbial father of the nation, imprisoned by the Germans for most of the war and then after the war, living as an emigre in West Germany, end quote. Now, I have read elsewhere that in 1944, the Germans did allow Bandera to briefly return to Ukraine to rally the resistance against the advancing Soviets. But um, this is contradicted by what I just read by Seri Ploki, The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine. 2021 edition, Basic Books, New York. He then goes on to discuss the uh, formation of a so-called Galician SS unit of Ukrainian collaborators in the same far western region of Ukraine by the Nazis. And he writes, the recruitment of volunteers for the division, announced in April 1943, immediately caused a split 
in the nationalist underground, the Bandera faction, was vehemently opposed, while members of Bandera's opponent, Colonel Andrei Melnik, supported it. Mainstream Ukrainian political leaders, including bishops of the Catholic Church, were also divided. Those who supported the formation of the division thought as much in terms of Galicia's Austrian past as did the Germans in deciding to create it. Galicia is another kind of sub-region of this uh, far western part of Ukraine, along with Transcarpathia. And again, this was a part of the country which had been under Austrian Habsburg rule and later Polish. So this was a kind of, a, you know, Germanic legacy, so to speak, which was um, exploited by the Nazis. And the Ukrainian nationalists who went along with it were the, the so-called moderates, <laughs> the ones who were less nationalist and less opposed to a foreign power occupying their country. In contradiction to all of the, uh, you know, propaganda that we're getting now about how all the Ukrainians are Nazis and that Ukrainian nationalism is, you know, monolithically and uniformly collaborated with or been nostalgic for Nazism. Get a very, very different picture from reading The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine by Seri Ploki. So, uh, you know, in closing, I urge all of you who in this very dark moment with the stakes so high, who are engaging in oversimplified portrayals of the history, to get outside your confirmation bias bubble and to start reading some accounts from sources which do not share your political assumptions. Imagine that. And I'm speaking here not only, unfortunately, to my tanky enemies who would portray Stepan Bandera merely as a Nazi collaborator, full stop, when in fact his period of Nazi collaboration was a matter of, what, days or weeks before he was slapped in a concentration camp by the Nazis, but also to my anarchist comrades, who probably, like myself, until just a couple of weeks ago, had no idea that their hero, Nestor Machno, was involved in this whole unsavory affair with the Mennonites. The stakes are really way too high to be engaging in oversimplified propaganda and to be weaponizing history, as opposed to really trying to understand it. So uh, my advice to you all is to hit the books. <laughs> the two books which we've been discussing tonight are uh, The Gates of Europe, A History of Ukraine, by Serhi Ploki, and Makhno and Memory, Anarchist and Mennonite Narratives of Ukraine's Civil War, 1917-1921, by Sean Patterson. Highly recommended by yours truly, Bill Weinberg. And this has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Please check us out online at countervortex.org where I blog every day and rant every week on the podcast about world affairs from an anarchist perspective, support us on Patreon. I really can't continue this high level of research preparation for every podcast without your support. Please shell out just a dollar a week for me 
and my CounterVortex collaborators, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the countervortex. Join the resistance and rant on you next time.